Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But now you're on the bench. Your soul bellows out a soothing sound. Cause here comes the quench. Know that this press is gonna test our metal. If we make it through this fire, if we can survive the flow, you can find us pushing tight, strong like steel, hard to go. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Invincible by Michael McFarland. This Cleveland indie rocker is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. If you love Depression-era gangster stories, tonight's episode has it all. The kidnapping and armed robbery of a mail truck driver in Trumbull County, stolen loot that may be laying at the bottom of a lake in Summit County, a great train robbery in Portage County. We'll even throw in the manhunt for public enemy number one, a wrongful conviction, and a presidential pardon. And it's all connected. This sensational string of incidents begins on April the 24th, 1935, an average Wednesday afternoon in Warren, a mid-sized city in the northeast Ohio county of Trumbull. Burl Villers, who drives a truck for the Warren Post Office, is a trusted custodian of the U.S. Mail. And on this day, he's got more than the usual collection of letters and small packages with him. When he leaves the station for his rounds, he's also transporting sacks that hold more than $120,000, 72000 of it in cash, as part of the payroll for the Republic Steel Corp as well as 53000 in government bonds. But this isn't going to be an average Wednesday afternoon after all, because we are living in the Great Depression, an era of dapper and cocky gangsters and high-profile armed robberies. And somebody has gotten word that Bro Villers is carrying more than letters from Grandma. Shortly after leaving the downtown post office, his truck is cut off by a gray sedan, which breaks right in front of him, forcing him to come to a stop. I found one account that said this happened right between City Hall and the police station. So brazen these thieves were. 
The gray sedan helped three men. Two of them immediately jumped out, revealed guns, and headed for Burl's truck. Burl pulled his own gun, but he knew he was outmatched. Later, he would say he wished he'd shot the bandits, but added, I guess it's better to be alive than a dead hero. Burl dropped his pistol out of the window into the street, and the two gunmen jumped into both sides of his truck. One of the men grabbed Burl by the neck. The other thrust a gun into his ribs. Burl yelled for help. It was, after all, downtown Warren in the middle of the afternoon. But one of the robbers told him to shut up and drive. The gun in his side did its job of convincing him to do just that. He was instructed to follow the gray sedan. There were eyewitnesses. A man named Francis D'Alessandro was getting into his car on the east side of the street when this all went down. And nearby, sitting in her car, a woman named Mary Pop took it all in. They'll both give their accounts to police. Burl followed the gray sedan to the outskirts of town and an abandoned garage there, where the third man appeared with a machine gun. Burl was ordered to drag the mailbags out of his truck. Then he was ordered back into the vehicle where he was locked in. He could hear the robbers driving away. Burl didn't have too much trouble escaping his own vehicle, and he called police. And within the hour, the manhunt was on. A day later, all eyes turned to Akron, an hour to the west. Near there, on Thursday evening, three men had spotted a big canvas bag floating in the north reservoir of the Portage Lakes, which is a series of several bodies of water strung together in southern Summit County. The men, Charles and Martin Miller and Ernest Krantz, were having dinner in a home along the south shore off State Mill Road. They stepped outside for a smoke and grew curious about some material floating in the lake. When they saw the initials U.S. stamped on it, they recognized it as a mailbag and called the Summit County Sheriff. While the deputies were on their way, the men began to pick up pieces of mail they found littering the shoreline. Akron Postmaster L.D. Carter was also called to the scene and confirmed this was no run-of-the-mill pouch. It was one of the bags stolen in that sensational robbery in Warren the day before. Summit County Sheriff deputies spent the rest of the evening and much of the next day scouring the lake, and they recovered several bundles of first-class mail and about $50,000 worth of the stolen government bonds. Some of the waterlogged loot was stuck to the shore of Myers Island. That's a small piece of land connected to the north side of the reservoir by a causeway. That made authorities think that the robbers had actually tossed the bag into the lake from Portage Lakes Drive to the north, and that the bag, while it still had some air in it, had been carried on a breeze a half mile to the southern shore. When residents in Akron heard this news, a milkman doing his rounds in the Portage Lakes area stepped forward saying he may have seen the bad guys. He recalled a gray sedan, just like the one the newspapers described as the getaway car, driving through the area, and three men inside who looked like they were sorting through bags. Authorities began to think maybe the men had sorted the wheat from the chaff. 
dumping the letters and the risky bonds, and keeping the most valuable part of what they'd stolen, the cash. The 72000 was never recovered. And for months, maybe even years, Portage Lakes residents kept their eyes open in case some of that money started washing ashore. Within an hour of discovering that floating mail pouch, Warren postal officials arrived in Akron. They took the first-class mail back to their city, dried the envelopes out, and sent them on their merry way. Federal agents came to Akron, too. They didn't leave so fast. They and local police were now convinced that the robbers were part of Akron's underworld. On Friday, they hustled through bookie joints and gang headquarters, slapping handcuffs on nine shady characters. One man picked up by Akron detectives Gilbert Mosley and Howard Turner was a man named George Sargent, a 37-year-old who had come to the area with his wife from New York. They'd always suspected Sargent of being a racketeer and a member of the notorious Purple Gang out of Detroit. But police never had evidence to arrest him for anything. They were sure going to try now. They spotted him getting into his car and pulling away from the Portage Hotel where he lived. And in dramatic fashion, two detectives jumped on his car's running board, grabbed the steering wheel, and forced him back to the curb. Three other cops picked up Anthony Labrazetta, who went by the name Tony Campola. The 32-year-old Campola lived at Mosser Court and worked as sergeant's bodyguard and aide. He was nailed on Main Street in front of a downtown Akron nightclub. Sergeant and Campola were among the nine known crooks put in a lineup for male driver Burl Villers to check out. Burl first pointed to Sergeant and said, That's him. I will never forget that son of a bitch, he said. Then he pointed at Campola. He wasn't as positive, but said he was practically certain Campola was one of the other three men. Sergeant and Campola were promptly arrested, and the other seven men were let go, with detectives heard advising them, you should pick better company in the future. Police thought they had their men, but not everyone was so sure. In early news reports, people familiar with the Akron underworld said George Sargent was a big shot, much too far up the food chain to dirty his hands personally in such a risky robbery. But the wheels of justice turned, and that September, Tony Campola and George Sargent went on trial in a Cleveland federal courtroom. The prosecution put up Burl Villers and those two eyewitnesses I mentioned earlier as being near the scene of the crime, Pop and Delisandro. They all identified Campola and Sargent as the men who hopped out of their gray sedan, bared their pistols, and flanked the mail truck. The defense said, no way. They called numerous witnesses who had seen the pair in Akron the afternoon of the robbery, including Michael Finnelly, an Akron lawyer who said they were in his office, and others who said they saw the men in an Akron restaurant early in the afternoon. But who are you going to believe? The victim and some upstanding bystanders who saw it all happen? Or the word of a mob attorney and other disreputable characters? The jury certainly had no trouble deciding. 
They took exactly eight minutes to find both men guilty, and the judge sentenced each to 25 years in prison. Well, the defense said, wait a minute, there was no way the jury did their job. They could not have fully considered the evidence in the case and arrived at a verdict in just eight minutes. And Judge Samuel West, who heard this appeal, said, you know what, you're right. He granted Sargent and Campola their request for a new trial. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so, the second trial took place in January of 1936. It ended with the same verdict, guilty, but at least this time the jury deliberated for three hours. Unknown to everyone at this point, however, was that something had happened between those two trials that was going to change everything. In November of 1935, so this is two months after their first trial, two months before the second trial, Ohio had a genuine train robbery, actually the last great train heist in U.S. history. And it happened in, of all places, the tiny Portage County farming village of Garrettsville, about midway between the cities of Warren and Akron. The train that was targeted was carrying mail from Cleveland to Warren, and among that mail, payroll for the Republic Steel Corp. That was the same company that had been targeted by the mail truck robbery. It was a scene straight out of the Wild West. Seconds after the train pulled into the Erie Railroad Depot in Garrettsville, six bandits, some of them concealing their faces behind handkerchiefs, fired their machine guns into the air to announce their presence. The robbers threw unlit sticks of dynamite into the train, then warned that the next sticks would be lit. The threat worked, and the train crew opened the door to give the thieves access. There were a handful of bystanders nearby, and the gun-toting thieves rounded up about a dozen of them, men and women. They were put into a line and told to keep their hands on their heads. Then two of them, local residents named Earl Davis and Robert Brockett, were pulled from the lineup and ordered to carry seven heavy mail pouches from the train platform to a Plymouth sedan, a gray sedan. During the robbery, a local woman, Mrs. W.L. Scott, wandered onto the platform, apparently unaware that the holdup was in progress. It was reported that one of the robbers pushed her with a machine gun and yelled, Get back against the station wall or I'll drill you. Within 10 minutes of their arrival, the entire gang was gone, taking with them $34,000 in currency and $12,000 in bonds. It was probably a whole lot less than they were expecting, but still about $715,000 in today's money. 
The FBI swarmed the tiny farm town to investigate the train heist, and pretty quickly, they attributed it to the man who was their current public enemy number one, a gangster named Alvin Karpis, who had the unfortunate nickname of Creepy Face. The FBI had been chasing Creepy Face Karpis for years on allegations of robbery as well as kidnapping and murder, and they wanted him for that train robbery. On May the 1st, 1936, now, just so you've got your timeline straight, this is about three months after our Akron gangsters started serving hard time for the robbery of that Warren mail truck. The FBI caught up with Carpus in New Orleans. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was so excited, he made the arrest himself. It was actually the first arrest he personally had ever made in his life. Carpus admitted to the train robbery And when attached to some other crimes they got him for, he got a 26-year stretch at San Francisco's Alcatraz prison for it and eventually earned the distinction of being the longest-serving prisoner on that hellish island. Not surprisingly, authorities also now thought Carpus was responsible for the robbery of Burl Villers' mail truck. I mean, come on, a gray sedan? cash payroll for the Republic Steel Company, mail destined for Warren. There were just too many similarities. Carpus would never admit it. Still, U.S. Attorney General Homer Cummings was convinced that Sergeant and Campola, criminals though they may be anyway, were innocent of what they were in jail for. He asked President Franklin Roosevelt to pardon the two gangsters. And he did. The two Akron men were released from prison. Now, there's one other small and fun mystery associated with this story. You see, the high school in Garrettsville is called Garfield High School, and their sports teams are called the G-Men. Lots of folks in that area actually grew up assuming the G in G-Men either stood for Garrettsville or Garfield High, A few years ago, a local author named Julie Thompson investigated that name, however, because she had watched an old James Cagney show in which the villains were using the term G-men as gangster-era shorthand for government men. And she found some very elderly Garrettsville residents who confirmed her suspicion. The high school nickname was actually a nod to the FBI agents who swarmed the town to investigate that 1935 train robbery. Thompson tried to find proof, but old school records and board meeting notes failed to explain their choice of the name G-Men. Still, there seems to be little reason to disagree with the memory of the old-timers. I sure wouldn't have any trouble believing the town was simply memorializing their historic role in the nation's last big train robbery and the capture of the FBI's last public enemy number one. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention, and that's Ohio's extraordinary connection to public enemy number one. The term America's public enemy was a gimmick started by FBI Director Hoover in 1934 to keep the public focused 
on their most wanted man during that Great Depression era of big-time gangsters. Only four men ever made that list. The first was John Dillinger. When he was killed, the title transferred to Pretty Boy Floyd. When Floyd was killed, Babyface Nelson was promoted, and when he died in a shootout, our Garrettsville train robber, Alvin Karpus, took the top spot. The concept of naming a public enemy was retired after Karpus's capture. If you've been listening to our show for a while, then you've probably already heard our episodes on John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd, both with extensive resumes of robberies, escapes, and murder in Ohio. Adding Karpus, that means three of the only four men ever to be named the FBI's public enemy number one spent a significant part of their criminal careers terrorizing the Buckeye State. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Michael McFarlane's style of indie rock mixes modern acts like Weezer and Bastille with classic singer-songwriters like Paul Simon and Elton John. And sometimes the result is an anthem, like the song we're featuring tonight, Invincible. This Cleveland musician launched his last album, Through This Fire, last October, with songs that carried an uplifting message. It was inspired by the global pandemic, and if you pay attention to the lyrics, you'll see it captures the resilience of the creative spirit. Invincible dares us to come out the other side of this stronger than when we went in. If you want to watch Michael in person, mark your calendar for November the 5th. He'll be performing that night with a full band at the 5 o'clock lounge in Lakewood, Ohio. So let's have another listen to Invincible by Michael McFarland. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. This life is like a crucible Sometimes it burns It feels hotter than it used to though But now's the time to learn Know that this heat is gonna make us stronger But everybody gets beat now and then If we make it through this Blast furnace is a proving ground But now you're on the bench Your soul bellows out a soothing sound Cause here comes the quench Know that this press is gonna test our metal But the better find best in the end If we make it through